1: Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So, turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume. Welcome to Totally 80s. And since we're all at home, why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram and email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. As a reminder, if you'd like to see our lovely faces, you can catch this episode on video as well on our YouTube channel, Totally 80s YouTube channel. So check that out. And joining me today is the Azrael abyss in my world, my partner in all things 80s, the other John Hughes.
0: I did. I, I, I if you're watching on YouTube, I am dressed for the occasion. I'm not wearing a band t-shirt or anything. I'm all dark and as gothy as you're, I get at the age of uh, her, her.
1: You're wearing a proper colored shirt buttoned all the way up to the neck. Margaret Show would approve. Margaret. There's I, no there's no brooch, though. There's no brooch. I, brooch, I whatever you
0: call it. A big, yeah, medallion type granny cameo right here. I should have gone for that.
1: Well, there's a reason why you're dressed up for the occasion, because today, John, we are walking down Fascination Street through a forest and into the Hanging Garden. It'll be just like heaven. And obviously, you can listen to this anytime you want. You can listen to it uh, at 1015 on a Saturday night, Friday when you're in love, in between days. It's up to you. So anyway, guys, if you haven't figured it out yet, after all my terrible puns, today we are talking about my favorite band of all time. The Cure, and I thought I was The Cure's biggest fan until I met the fabulous woman that is our special guest. She is the biggest Cure fan I know. She is a musician and songwriter who you may know from the current lineup of Eagles of Death or from Courtney Love's band. In addition to releasing her own music, including a very awesome cover of The Cure's own A Night Like This. And I buried the lead because don't think I won't be asking her about the fact that she holds the title as the winner of Sassy Magazines biggest cure fan contest so you know she wins at life uh we're gonna talk about that and all things cure welcome to the show please base phenom and cure fan extraordinaire miss jenny v Yay. Hi. first of all
2: amazing puns i loved your intro and yeah you made me sound pretty pretty awesome
1: well, you are pretty awesome. And like I said, when I found out, when John and I were figuring out what our, you know, we've done a couple art, very artist-specific episodes of the podcast. We did a Duran Duran one, we did a Madonna one. When we finally got around to doing the one that my whole career is built up to, The Cure, and we were trying to think of a guest that would be good for this, I was like, I, I've got to invite Jenny, because if there's anyone who knows more about The Cure than me, it's her. I was
2: well. I was a little nervous before I, I came on the show today, brushing up on some of my Cure knowledge because, man, I was an, en- I was an encyclopedia when I was younger. Truly, truly, uh, world's biggest Cure fan. There was a contest that we'll talk about, but I—it I, was my life. The Cure was my life. <laughs> How did
0: you get introduced to them?
2: I was watching MTV. I grew up in Canada and we had a satellite dish and not everybody had that and you had to have one to get MTV. So MTV was the source of everything for me. And I saw the video for Close to Me. Oh, and I, was, Yeah, I was already, I was, I, I was drawn to it because I was already kind of that awkward, um, forlorn little child who felt out of place everywhere I went. So anything that seemed different to me what seemed different when i was really young was like buddy holly or the movie xanadu like pop pop culture things but the things that had kind of quirkiness to them um and it wasn't until i saw the cure that i really really could super relate it's so funny i was 10 years old i think 10 about 10 years old when i saw that video and i could relate to you know a 30 year old man like robert smith but he was my guy
0: (laughs) but it's weird it's funny that you say that because i think i was about oh 14 or 15, and I saw a video for the walk on MTV mm. in light rotation. I'm like, This is what's this baby he's holding, and he's in a kitty pool. I don't understand this. And it kind of scared me a little bit, but I was like, That fascinated kind of scared you get and then they put let's go to bed in rotation and i'm like that
1: that was my introduction let's go to bed
0: right this is that same band but this song is super poppy and catchy and i like it and i went and ran out and bought the cassette for japanese whispers and it's been all downhill
1: but see that's the point that i think is interesting that we can all talk about especially you jenny being a musician is the cure have been so many things i i i'm hard-pressed to think of a band that's had so many i mean now we kind of think of a signature sound that kind of got established with with with, I'd say the head on the door. But leading up to that, I mean, I'm hard pressed to think of a band that went through more artistic transitions. Like they're up there with like Bowie Mm -hmm. and the Beatles and and Beck in terms of doing different things. So your introduction was close to me. Me and John, our introduction was like the Japanese whispers era. What's crazy though, This is crazy how I really got into the cure. So I was, you know, so anglophilic. I think we all were pretty anglophilic because of MTV. And I had seen the let's go to bed video and the walk and probably the love cats video at this point. And then my grandparents went on a trip to Europe and they were going to go to London. And to me, that was the mecca of everything. Like, oh, you know, that's where all the cool music's from. So I asked my grandparents if they would go to a record store and get me some records by some of my favorite bands. I swear to God, I probably had 35 bands on the list. More (laughs) vinyl they could bring back. But they brought me back two records. One was by Howard Jones and the other one was by a band on the top of the list called The Cure. This would have been 84. And so I know they just... I love the vision of my grandparents doing this, but I know they just must've walked into any random store and said, do you have um, a cure record for our granddaughter? So they probably were just handed the most recent one. So they brought me home the top, my grandparents. Okay, a vinyl. And if your only knowledge of M- of the cure at that point where those three poppy MTV videos, two of which were when mm-hmm. they were just the duo of Robert and, and Lowell Tolhurst, that's a mine like i was like what i was like is this the same cure like are are there two cures is this like the cure uk because it was like acid trippy and completely effed up and like psychedelic and kind of ugly but like uh, ugly in a good way and i liked it too and that blew my mind and then of course was the commercial breakthrough but that then i went back and then there was like the very early album which is almost like a buzzcock's Pop post-punk pop album and then the really dark stuff from the three records that followed that through pornography so like they've done it all and I'm curious you guys what's your favorite incarnation of the cure is it kind of like James Bond where like the first one you've discovered is always going to be James Bond to you like is the cure to you Jenny always going to be head on the door is it for you John always going to be the walk like what's the archetype of the cure for you guys
2: Well, it's interesting. I want to go back to what you were saying about how how their early catalog was so diverse. And in those first five years to go from three imaginary boys through 17 seconds, pornography and then to the top, which was so obscure and weird. That was five years, I think. Wow. Yeah. About that. I've done like one record in the past five years. They (laughs) went the gamut and did so many diverse things and sounds and when it, the top was an interesting one for me, I love the song Banana Fish Bones. And one great thing about the cure is that there's so many great literary references in um, their, their music. I had never heard of Albert Camus before I heard Killing an Arab and I, I read mm-hmm. about that, inspired him to write that song. So of course, I got into Camus and Banana Fish Bones led me to Salinger. So here we are at the top. And for me, getting back to your question, it will be the head on the door. That's my favorite Cure album. And that's my holy uh, trilogy, trinity of, of albums by any artist. It's Head on the Door, Kiss Me and Disintegration.
1: It's funny because I actually, I have a habit of flying out to other countries to see bands and uh, The Cure I've done a couple of times. I went to the Hyde Park show a couple of years ago, flew out to London. I think I remember I told you about that. I think I used, uh, Jenny, that was amazing. That was the 40th anniversary. But a few years before that, they did uh, the trilogy of uh, albums. the fir- They did um, the first three albums they did three imaginary boys, 17 seconds of faith at the opera house in Sydney, the Sydney opera house. And I went for that. So they considered he considered that a trilogy. And then Robert Smith once said in interviews when bloodflowers came out that he saw pornography, even though they're not consecutive pornography, disintegration and bloodflowers is a trilogy. That's right. I think the trilogy you just mentioned, if they ever did a show that was head on the door, yeah. kiss me, kiss me, kiss me at disintegration together, and they would actually die. I lose
0: my- <laughs> it would be a seven-hour show.
1: That's fine. I got time. I haven't seen show in months. I got to make up for time. I've been out of my house in months. But yes, um, I agree with you. I think for a lot of people, head on the door was an entry point. My my uh, upbringing was a lot different from yours, Jenny, in the sense that I grew up in L.A., not um, where are you, Sudbury? That's a real small town in Canada, right?
2: Ontario, Canada. The only other um, well person you might know from there is Alex Trebek, but it's a mining town I'm about gonna- four hours north of. Toronto, and I think the population's about 150 wow. right now. But when I was growing up there, it was like 80,000. And I actually grew up on a farm, half hour outside of Sudbury. So wow.
1: I'm way out there. Because I grew up in LA with K Rock, where yeah. the head on the door, and actually probably from like Japanese Whispers on, but certainly when Head on the Door came out, they were the high rotation band, and they were so huge here. And yeah. that was Head on the Doors when they kind of became for all intents and purposes, a pop band. That's when they, you know, were playing, you know, from that point on, when they came to LA, they were playing Dodger Stadium, you know, amphitheaters, arenas, but you had a real different, and I know John grew up in a small town, too, so you're-
0: I'm shaking my head because even for the same country, such a polar opposite experience that you had. Small town, much like Jenny, uh, Midwest, and I had to special order Head on the Door from Camelot Music. Uh I carry it. I had a special order Japanese whispers from Cam's record shop in Elyria, Ohio, and it's funny because head on the door I think is my favorite as well. But I have these weird ebbs and flows. Pornography faith took me so long to get into. Um, you know, I like the singles, you know, because I heard them on Staring at the Sea and everything. I'm like, oh, you know, and I go into the album like, whoa, this is this is really dark. Now I love those records. There are two. Mm your records i just can't get into no matter how hard i try and i know this wasn't the question but um i cannot do the top no matter how hard i try sorry everybody wow and, and blood flowers i bang my head against the wall bluff flow- does every well, song i mean to-
1: at the risk of saudine i don't want to i i love the cure I'm so sorry, much Jenny. but you know i do i do feel the really kind of people sad. disintegration I'm not into bloodflowers. flowers. Okay. But have- <laughs> top we need to convince you that the top is worth. I mean, the, for the caterpillar alone, that's such a great record. Uh, I, so-
0: a great single. I think what happened was Japanese Whispers, so poppy, I'm yeah. ready for this next record and then this comes and I buy it and it just hits me in the face like a frying pan. I'm like, "Whoa, what?"
1: So my my James Brown analogy my sorry, my James Bond analogy was true in your case you had it set a template in your mind i'm very curious if this would be something if we talk to any cure fan of any age demographic uh background if the first cure record they heard if it was you know pornography for instance or if it was japanese whispers or if it was uh kiss me if that makes it so like does status- the standard of Cure for them forever. But I will think that one of the things that threads together all of these records, which have had not just very different styles, but of course, a really different lineup. I mean, my God, if every person who ever played The Cure got together for a reunion concert, it would look like we are the world, a goth real the world. It would be like 30 people together, arm in arm singing. I'm perfectly fine with that. all them singing a forest together for charity, probably won't happen. But there were, you know, they've had so many different band members and so many different styles. But the common thread, of course, is Robert Smith. But I think it's not just his voice, which is one of the most distinctive voices in singing, but uh, in music. But also his lyrics. Anyone who grew up in suburbia, any type of suburbia, could really relate to the lyrics because you know if you know anything about the background that uh robert and lowell grew up in they grew up in a pretty depressed uh you know outside of london small town i talked to little tolhurst about this because he obviously wrote a memoir a couple years ago and i was like you are not the ambassador for crawley the crawley tourism mm-hmm. board is not gonna hire you as a spokesperson he does not speak very well of that town and i think a lot of people living in small towns speak in england or, uh, you know, in America, even me, I, I grew up in LA, but I grew up in the valley. So it's not like I was hanging out in Hollywood when I was 12. I was like in suburbs. I think we all could kind of connect to it. And I'm really curious, you, Jenny, because it seems like you grew up between the three of us in the smallest town, the most remote town, you probably were like the only Cure fan, unlike me, you were like the only Cure fan in your town. Like, what was it about you about that, that like connected to you when you were feeling like an outsider?
2: There was something that I could really relate to. The town I grew up in was small and also a very dreary, desolate kind of place. The landscape up there, I don't know if you guys know about the Canadian Shield, but it's very rocky and it's the oldest exposed rock on earth. So I think NASA did testing there before the the moon landing, if the moon landing actually even happened, whole other episode if we want to talk about that. was rocky and desolate and cold, you know? In the summer, sure, it could be beautiful, but just, I'm not the ambassador for for Sudbury, the greater Sudbury area either, like Crawley. I think it's just a grim gray place where most people don't leave and I could feel that. And from a young age, I I just had the sense of um, wanting to get out and needing to escape. So the cure kind of became my escape in that town and other bands too, but my, of course, The Cure were on the on the top of the list. Music was everything to me, and it was like a, a fantasy world. I decorated my room with all Cure posters. I painted it purple. I hung a chandelier, and I'm like a young kid. But that's how I could express myself. It's where I found my own sense of uh, creativity and expression. So that it gave me something to do it was more than just listening to music it became my world and being up there just like John I had to special order everything and then I found a cure fan club called other voices that was based in Norman Oklahoma and I had pen pals and that was my social network and we would trade tapes and we would send each other these amazing packages decorated we photocopied pictures from magazines and paint them with watercolors it was really an epic kind of a like a pre-internet social network. So I think I had pen pals at one point.
0: But that's important stuff you just mentioned about how, first of all, music is a lifeline for kids in small towns, especially back then, because it was for me too. And it showed me a window uh, outside of my small town that, oh, there's something happening out there that I can escape, uh, for lack of a better word, and get to where I want to be. And The Cure were definitely a part of that. And I had a different experience than you in that you joined a pen pal club and, and made friends from everywhere. I forced The Cure upon all my friends. Oh. listen <laughs> <laughs> to this band and you're gonna like them. I don't put that Judas Priest cassette away.
1: Yeah. Did it work? Did it
0: work? I, did. I converted all of them to like Good Cure. For fans you. And Good And stuck with some of them. They became total goths like me and, and new wave guys, whatever you want to call it back then and some of them were like, you know, I still like Def Leppard, but that one Cure song is pretty darn good. It was push.
1: Well, they must have loved they must have loved the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony last year then when both bands got in, you know, there's something for everyone. Um but this is there's a point I want to make about what you guys are talking about which I think is really interesting. So when I was, a, you know, a kid obviously was we've established a huge Cure fan and I loved Robert Smith's lyrics so much that I would make kind of my own fake poetry Uh, you know i would write things that i thought i'm not a musician but i'm a writer i
2: wrote this poetry you could have won the sassy contest
1: we're going to talk about that i would have come in second to you because you really committed but i wrote yeah i wrote poems and i put them all in a you know i typed them up on yes a typewriter i'm old enough that i had to do that and printed them out and or you know wrote them out and it was called blood on the mirror i don't know why it sounds morose. So I was just like taking, it was almost like Mad Libs, like those magnets with words on them. I was like taking words that are in like pure <laughs> songs and putting it's them together. A good, good title. It's a good title. I'm not. <laughs> okay. Hearing. So it was like a couple hundred pages, you know, a couple, hundred. you know, hundred, at least a hundred pages. And I presented them to my parents proudly. I was like, look, I'm a writer now. And they were like, oh, you know, it was like that. T- suicide tendency song, like, We're afraid you're going to hurt someone, and we're afraid you're going to hurt yourself. Lindsay, are you okay? Is there something you want to talk about? You know, this is, you know, they start talking about like Richard Ramirez because he was like prowling the valley at the time, and you know, he was the valley killer. They're like, Well, you know, he liked a lot of like satanic lyrics, and look what happened. I don't think they were necessarily saying, We think you're a serial killer. They were like, We're worried about you. And I was so bummed because it was like, oh, I was just trying to like write like Robert Smith, like you don't get it. And of course it all worked out. But my my point is, and you know, this happened with the, the Columbine shooting and Marilyn Manson, it definitely happened with people like Judas Priest actually. And this idea that music that has darkness in it in any shape or form, just darker lyrics, darker themes, um, is a bad influence on kids or taps into bad things in kids. When I actually would say, I would say this of emo music. I would say this of any goth music. Like, I think this music saves people. I would say The Cure probably saved a lot of people uh, despite my parents' alarm. I think they saved me, you know. they. So I, I'm curious, uh, either of you guys, how you would think that this music, The Cure's music saved you guys. It,
2: it saved me 100%. When I felt like I had nothing and that I was nowhere, I I turned to the Cure, it it was my world, and furthermore, it inspired me. Their music inspired me to play music myself. And if I didn't have that, I I I so strongly identify with myself through music that I without it I can't even imagine who I would be. Which maybe maybe that's scary to to say that without that you're nobody. But it's it's just who I am and it's my it's my life and my world and my path. And if it wasn't for this particular band, I don't know what else would have inspired me to do that. And I don't, I, I do, truly can't imagine, you know, I sometimes get asked, well, what would you do if you weren't a musician? I have no answer. So if I didn't have this band that inspired me so much in so many ways to lead me to pick up, I'm looking at my bases right now, it's truly because of this band that I was inspired to do that. and more so Simon Gallup and his playing and knowing that I wanted to play bass.
1: just I was just about to ask you that because I think he, obviously, like I said, there's been a lot of people in The Cure, but Simon's a very consistent member of The Cure yeah. since 85 and a little bit before that. And um, I think he's the secret weapon or to you, it's not a secret, but I think he's the secret weapon of this band. I think when you think of what would be considered a, a riff in, in a Cure song, it's actually the bass line, you know, like when you think, and I'm curious how he influenced your, you know, your bass planer is the reason you picked up a bass as opposed to another instrument was because of him.
2: There's something very, very grounded about him and his playing from, one big thing that I always noticed when I was a kid about Simon was how he stood, how he stood when he played, how he was literally like there was a magnetic force pulling him into the earth. He was so grounded but also so free. And he played with his whole body. It was very power. It's, it still is. It's, it's, he's a very powerful bass player and I just wanted to be like that. And I wanted to embody that. And I, when I got my first base, I, it, it feel, I feel like it rooted me into that almost like magic because I can easily get in my head and be too airy and all up here and thinking of, you know, worrying or overanalyzing things. And as soon as I play bass, I, it all goes away. So something about his stance and his groundedness and his his r- rooted nature just really, really inspired me. I can kind of put it into words now, but I, don't, I, I couldn't explain it when
1: I was younger. Are there certain cure baselines that you think are especially, I mean, we all think of a forest, of course, but are there certain cure baselines that you think are especially like iconic? Fascination
2: Street, it's super simple. It's one of the first ones I learned to play. So that that, that one comes to mind instantly. A Night Like This is amazing. I did the cover of that song. And what I did with my version of A Night Like This was, over the years I noticed with the live performance of the songs, little things change. Little extra notes are thrown in or a, a different riff happens. So I took some of his live Elements from the song and I incorporated them into my version. Subtle things, and maybe if you weren't a bass player, you wouldn't notice, or maybe maybe you would subconsciously notice. But I really loved that one and I love how he's how it's evolved, uh staying super true to the original. But there's little changes that I notice live that I Robert does it too with his vocals. He throws different yeah. in all the time. So there's that one. Gosh, I think they're all so good. I
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's Simon, but screw is just built around an oh. entire bass line.
2: Exactly. Going back to one of our favorite albums or maybe our favorite. Right.
0: Album. I'm just going to say, you know, Simon is in there with just, I think I was going to say Holy Trinity, but now there's four of them I'm thinking of, of bassists that are just the best bassists. Andy Rourke from The Smiths, Les Pattinson from Echo and the Bunnymen, and of course, Hooky from New Order. And then you've got Simon. I mean, those four, that square, there you mm-hmm. go, uh, are just they broke that the, the 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 you know cliche of the, here's the bottom end that's all you're getting, and they made melodies. They made. Music. Let's make
1: it a, a five point star and throw John Taylor into that mix. Let's yeah. just throw How it. Did of a, John Taylor. Well, he's not quite as dark sounding, but certainly an iconic basis. But I want to since you mentioned Fascination Street, Jenny, I want to ask about Disintegration because a lot of people, myself included, think that was the high point of their recording career. It was their most commercially successful record. And and that was when they played Dodger. They played one of the most epic shows ever. It was Dodger Stadium. And the opening acts were Love and Rockets and the Pixies. It was amazing. That was when they hit their, you know, critical peak as well as their commercial peak. But what I love about this record was that they thought it was commercial suicide at the time. They thought because it was coming off of two more poppy records, you know, I mean, you know, of course the head on the door and kiss me had lots of, you know, dark moments, but not the way Disintegration did. I've interviewed Robert Smith about this, where he's talked about the fact that he was, that kind of success that was happening wasn't sitting that well with him, you know, it was a lot. So he kind of wanted to make a record that willfully moved away from that. And then he ended up having the biggest record of his career. Like, what do you guys, what's your take on the fact that a record like that was so huge in 1989, which was a great year for alternative music? I
2: remember listening to interviews with Robert at the time, and I know he said it before, but he was saying that it was definitely The Cure's last album. I don't know if you guys remember that. And it also coincided with him turning 30. Mm -hmm. So he felt that his time in music and rock and roll or however you want to categorize it was over. And so I was devastated because I I wanted them to keep making records. And I had to go see them, and I had to go see them as much, much as I could. I was 13 years old at the time, and I truly, I believed the man, I shouldn't have, but I, I, I remember him having, I think he was going through that, the turning 30, um, like you were saying, I think some of the success wasn't sitting well with him, maybe some pressure, so he wanted to rebel against the um, the the hopes that he would do something super, super commercial and poppy and this is what He was he-
1: getting married too, I believe, right around that time. Yeah, 88, I think he got, well, I know he
2: got married in 1988 at a Benedictine monastery to mm-hmm. Mary Poole, his childhood sweetheart. So yeah, I think he was going through a lot at the time, you know, leading up to, to making that record. And it's funny to me, every time I hear that it was their most commercially successful record, it's true. I think of how dark it is and how epic and long some of the songs are and that this was the one which is... I, I waver with Head on the Door and Disintegration being, they're on the side for my, fav- my favorite
1: well, it, Disintegration did have their one top 10 hit, which was the song he wrote as the the wedding song for Mary, Love Song, which was, you know, definitely along with, I'd say, probably Lullaby the most poppy song on that album or the most lighthearted song on that album. And uh, it about a spider eating you or something like that. <laughs> well, light, lighthearted by cure standards. But I remember because I just said that 1989 was such a great year in music and also that love and rockets opened that show uh, right. at the, at the Dodger stadium. I remember, I can't remember the order. John is really good with charts, but he'll remember this, but there was one week where either lo- where love song and so alive by love and rockets occupied spots two and three. John, you'll tell me who was two and who was three.
0: I believe Love Song got to number two.
1: Okay, yep. and then, so, so so basically we had ex-members of Bauhaus, whatever. We had Love and Rockets and The Cure in the top three, in the top 40. And there's some people like kind of alternative rock purists, which I sometimes, you know, when I was a teenager had a sense to be like, oh, I hate that my music's popular now. It's easy to think that. But I just remember feeling like we won. Like, this is cool. Like, the bands that I've liked for a while are now reaching big audiences and people are realizing this is great stuff. And I imagine that so many people felt a couple years later when a band like Nirvana and all the bands they ushered in got big. It's like, we won. The cool music now rules. But I just remember how significant that was, that Love and Rockets and The Cure could be in the top, I think the number one song that week was like Paul Abdul or someone like that. John would maybe know, but, it but was- that's
0: absolutely what happened. You had all this 120 minutes alternative nation stuff bubbling under the surface from like 85, 86, and these bands just, first of all, first and foremost, kept putting out great stuff. Number one, and then you had labels that were actually putting some money behind it at the time and pushing it at a major level. And so by 88, 89, you had. The Replacements had a top 100, Hot 100 hit for God's sake. Uh, you have mm-hmm. The Cure finally breaking through. You have a song like Lullaby scraping, you know, the Hot 100 as well, you know, that lighthearted song about being consumed by a spider, it's <laughs> Um You have pictures of you, you know, doing, yeah. my- Fascination Street almost made the top 40. I think it got like 44 or 45. Fascination well, Street, what?
1: One thing that I, I think people sort of forget because of what people think the word alternative means, and I did just mention Nirvana, but before the grunge or whatever, the alternative rock explosion of the 90s thing happened, this was what alternative rock was. It was Depeche Mode, it was Cure, it was New Order, Echo and the bunnyman, you know, it, this is what K-Rock was. College
0: rock yeah. is what they called it.
1: Yeah, so we're talking a lot about stuff we, uh, you know, our childhood and, you know, love of The Cure and how it shaped our lives. So we can't delay it any longer. I just wanted to keep people in suspense for a moment. Jenny, I give you the floor. The reason why you're, you know, such a Cure fan is because Sassy decreed it, so you hold the title. I need the whole, this story is so epic. I have an epic childhood story I'm going to tell afterwards, but I want you to go first because yours is better. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> I truly wish I still had all the memorabilia from these days, and, and I don't. I don't even have photographic evidence of this. So you'll just have to take my word for it. This is true. Um, Sassy Magazine, for those of you who might not remember, was a really cool, uh, I guess it was on the cusp of the alternative uh, you know, wave that that was upon us. And there was a lady named Jane Pratt, and she started the magazine. And I liked it. It was cool. It was different. It wasn't your typical teen magazine, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And The Cure had just released Disintegration. This was 1990. So they had finished touring for it and they were doing Mixed Up. Do you guys remember? I know this is the 80s show, which this is the tail end of the 80s. So there was a remix album, Mixed Up, and they were going to release it. And to promote that, there was a full page ad in Sassy magazine. I was flipping through. Get Mixed Up with The Cure. Prove you're the world's biggest Cure fan, and you're gonna get a truly mixed-up, like mystery prize. I don't think that was the terminology, but they didn't say what it was. Or a prize pack with one truly great item. So I thought, oh my god, like maybe it's a, maybe it's a trip to London. Maybe you get to go to Fiction Records and hang out there for the day, or meet the band, or who knows, right? It was it was very mysterious. So I was already motivated. I'm gonna win. I'm the world's biggest Cure fan. No problem. I got this and my teenage brain's going crazy and it's completely taken over my life. The the contest came out in September, the deadline was December. So I had some time here to work on this. And like Lindsay, I also fancied myself a bit of a a poet and I had collected many poems that, she loves this part, that um, speaking of of blood, I signed them all in blood.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I do love that part, you are right. Commitment.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes, I did. I signed. I was, how old was I, 13? Yeah, Yeah. signing my poetry in blood. So I had to expand that collection. I decided 365 poems dedicated to the cure. That's a a good number. And I was probably up to about 100. So furiously in school, after school, at any time I was writing poetry and usually in response to a song. So I'd listen to a song and kind of stream of consciousness, write the song, sign it in blood, put it in the, the black duo tang that I decorated with red nail polish. It was a whole thing. And then beyond that, I thought this isn't enough. What if somebody else out there, like Lindsay, somewhere out there has poetry like this? So I decided I needed to construct a (laughs) dollhouse, a Cure dollhouse. And I remember reading that Robert Smith liked Christmas and Christmas lights and decorations. So the whole thing was Christmas themed and because December was the deadline, I made it Christmas themed. I painted every room. It was three floors. I tiled the floors. I had little miniature Christmas trees with little black spider decorations, the whole thing. I made dolls, I made a Robert Smith doll, I have a little shirt buttoned up like that, everything. And so that was my entry and I put the poetry book in the dollhouse, packed this thing up, was like, I don't even know, three feet in a box, FedExed it. I spent like $200 sending this thing. I had two jobs at the time. Send it to New York and I won. (laughs)
1: <laughs> did you ever get the dollhouse back? Where's the dollhouse now? I don't know. No, I never did. Did you take I a never, photo of it? No, I never did.
0: What was the prize?
1: The prize was the
2: entire Cure discography, which I already had, and it was it was you know, cool to get that um, in long CD long boxes. Okay. So that was kind of cool, and it was an autograph uh, poster, a self portrait that. Robert had painted of himself. I don't know if you've ever seen that that one and uh-huh. it was autographed, and that was my prize. So I was happy, a little bit disappointed. I thought I was gonna be going on some amazing world journey.
1: <laughs> but the prize was having the title. Did they run your um, photo in the magazine or your name or anything?
2: They ran the names. And when I I was notified with the letter with the Sassy uh, return address, the little logo on the envelope. So that came in the mail and I opened it and they listed the, ten, the top 10. And there were a couple of my pen pals on there. The, oh, how cute! We're in, you know, second place, third place, but it, my name was on the top. I freaked I, out.
1: I <laughs> am dying to know where the dollhouse ended up. I can't imagine anyone would have like tossed it, or it's got to be someone took it. Someone,
0: maybe Have
1: you? I know that you have obviously crossed paths a lot with the Cure now that you're um, a professional musician touring the world yourself. Jenny, have you ever told Robert or anyone else in the Cure? this story? Do they know about this contest and the dollhouse and all that? Are you too embarrassed to tell them you signed 365 poems in blood for them?
2: I didn't tell any of them.
0: (laughs) I'm with you. I can't tell you how many artists I've met in my job and I have to keep my mouth shut about
1: but That's such a good story. That's such a good story. I think, I mean, it's a little weird, but the commitment, especially because now you are crafty now you like make clothes you did this kickstarter for your own fashion line you make things like this was not just the beginning of like your music career kind of just the parallel beginning of all the like you know diy stuff you do which is so cool thank you yeah i actually i had always
2: sewn my grandfather was a tailor he's he was a croatian immigrant and he was a tailor he had a little shop and so i always sewed and from a young age i made clothes that i wanted because i couldn't find a blue velvet cape and Sudbury, Ontario. They just didn't have that. Yeah,
0: I'm with you. We had to do it. We had to like go to yeah. a store and find those parts and, and do some yeah. clothes hacking.
1: Exactly. Well, I have a, a couple. I'll combine them into one because they happen within a year of each other. But I have a good teenage cure story. It's not as good as yours. I should have probably gone first now that I think about it. It's too late. So the year was 1985. I had my first boyfriend, Patrick. Hi, Patrick, if you're listening. And... He had kind of, he wasn't the guy who turned me on to The Cure. I already said that I got turned on to The Cure by MTV and by this random record that came back from England with my grandparents. But I kind of got more into The Cure because of him. He was the one kid at my school who was all Robert Smith out, Robert Smith hair and all that. So, like, I immediately gravitated towards him and we definitely bonded. And he turned me on to a lot of The Cure music that I didn't know about. And we had tickets to go see The Cure at Irvine Meadows amphitheater for the Head on the Door tour. About, I'd say a week before he broke up with me. So I was doubly crushed. I don't actually know which I was more upset about. Was I more upset that my first boyfriend had dumped me or was I more upset that my first boyfriend who had a car uh, was gonna drive me to Irvine Meadows, which was an hour and a half away from my house. Like how was I going to get to see the cure? So I was bummed, but I immediately put out an APB around school, does anyone, is anyone going down to the show, I'll give you gas money and long story, you know, skip ahead, I got a ride and it was with three guys who went to my high school who I did not know, but they picked me up and I gave them gas money. we went down. By the time we got down there two hours later, we were we were friends. And this is the part that I didn't know. We get out of the car and the guy who was driving the car gets out all of these laminates or these like sticky laminates out of his bag. Turns out his dad works for the promoter. And he's like, oh, I'll meet, okay guys, meet you backstage afterwards. We'll will meet at the backstage door. And I was like, wait, what, what? <laughs> Like backstage, like to me, backstage was like, you know, almost famous stuff. Like, you know, I didn't know. All I wanted was to get there. So enjoy the show. Afterwards, we all go backstage. And of course, to me, backstage at that point makes me think I'm going to be like in a trailer with Robert Smith, like eating pizza. But, you know, now we all know it's really like hospitality area, which means you're in a party area, but the band's nowhere to be found. But we're hanging out. This is the 80s where people were a lot more lax. So we're like drinking beer. No one's carding us. We're having the time of our lives. The place starts to empty out. The Cure are not coming back. And we've already already missed curfew because we're like an hour and a half away from, you know, where we live. The people I'm with are like, well, let's go home. You know, it's getting late. And I'm like, I see their tour bus over the fence. I'm like, their tour bus is still here. The band is still here. Can't we just wait a little bit longer? I convince them to stay. The hospitality area literally closes out or like, I don't know why they weren't shooing us out, but the hospitality area is literally just us, a custodial worker and um, the bartender. And everyone's like, come on, let's just go. And then guess what? The cure walk backstage, all five of them, just us. They shrug and sit down at a table with us. They're like, hey guys, what's up? So we're like, oh my God, the cure here. So we ended up hanging out with them for like, I don't know, about an hour, I would say. We're drinking beer with them. We're smoking cigarettes with them. I remember talking to Robert a lot about Disneyland. He's into Disneyland, and they were going to Disneyland for the first time the next day. And so we were, you know, it was just amazing. I can't even remember. The fact, this is what I remember the most. I mean, it wasn't just awesome that I met the Cure. It was the fact that they were not treating us like crazy fans. They, we, we were kids. We were high school-age kids. There's no way they could have, they could have thought we were adults, but they were just talking to us. So finally we get home after after they decide to leave. It's like 4.30 in the morning when we get home. I didn't think to call my mom. I didn't have enough change for the for the payphone. Went, so when I get home, hours past my curfew, she is livid and she's beside herself and she is ready to ground me for life. But it's worth it, right? So before I can even like, she can even start yelling at me. Mom, my mom, oh my God, I'm at the cure, I'm at the cure, oh my God. I have, a, I had a disc camera, okay? So I slid that into my purse. You weren't supposed to bring cameras in, but it was skinny. So I'd slid the disc camera in my purse. I had photos with all of the cure. You know, I asked. I So I said, can I go do the one-hour photo tomorrow, please, please, please develop them? And she says, my mom's actually pretty cool. She went, never do this again. She's like, I understand why you didn't call but you should have called, but you know, I'll let it slide because I know how important this was to you. You She took me to one hour photo next day. I didn't just get like one copy of each photo. I got eight by tens for my locker and for, you know, poster size for my wall. And I got like, you know, wallet size. I actually used to carry these around like in bulk. And when I just wanted to impress someone, I would be like, hey guys, I'm at the cure. It was like a business card for me. (laughs) Here, here's a picture of me with Robert Smith. Here's a picture of me with with Sonic Elf, enjoy. And then it's the following day at school, Monday. I'm wearing my cure t-shirt and stupid Patrick walked up. He's wearing his. And he's like, Hey, did you ever find a ride to the cure? And I'm like, I sure did. I hand him one of the photos. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And I met the cure too. And this was a lie because actually the great lesson to learn from this is sometimes it's great when you get dumped because if I had just gone to the show with him, I would have had a good time, but none of this would have happened. When the door gonna-
0: closes another opens.
1: Exactly. So <laughs> I said to him, Oh, it's too bad we didn't go together because if we did, I probably could have introduced you to The Cure and I like walk off, my drop, okay? So I became all popular with my goth friends, but this was instrumental in a lot of ways. One, again, learn the lesson about, you know, if some things happen for a reason, but I will actually say this is kind of how I got into wanting to be in the music business. It sounds so cheesy and kind of almost groupie-ish to say, but the fact that I my first experience backstage, I had this wonderful experience where the band was nice to me and friendly and everybody acted like I was supposed to be there. Like no one thought it was weird that I was there. No one was trying to kick me out that, you know, people were serving me alcohol. People were like taking pictures of me, made me go, I want to kind of do this. I kind of want to like be part. I want to have a reason to be here, not just as a fan. I want to work in the music business. I want to be backstage hanging out where the action is every night. About a year later, they came back to LA to tour for standing on a beach. And I found out where they were staying. It was the Sunset Marquee Hotel. Every time I go to the Sunset Marquee Hotel, and I've gone there many times since because lots of rock stars stay there. Uh, But they were staying there. I took a bus. It took an hour and a half from the valley. There were about 10 people hanging out outside. The Sunset Marquee made us wait. It uh, understandably made us wait across the street, but they let us wait. We heard they were coming out. We saw a limo or some kind of fancy car come out. They were going to LAX. And they were about to get in their car when they saw that there were, you know, not a huge crowd but like 10, 15 gothy looking kids waiting for them. Robert Smith gestured for everyone. They were already getting in the car. Robert Smith gestured for them to get out of the car. We went across the street with us probably spent about 20 minutes talking to everybody, taking every photo asked of them, autographing everything, talking to people and to the point where the the chauffeur was literally like, get in the car now or you're going to miss your flight. So years later, I meet, I interview Robert Smith and I have these photos from when we met both of the times in my, in my purse. And I'm thinking, do I want to tell him all these things that I like waited in front of his hotel room for five hours to, you know, get a photo with him that I like did to this back. I didn't tell, but I ended up telling him, I waited till the interview was over and I said, Oh, I have some, something I want to show you, Robert. And um, I hope you don't think I'm weird. And he goes, oh God, is it a tattoo? So I guess he gets a lot of that, like people have Robert Smith tattoos. I said, no. So I told him the two stories. I just told you shorter, shorter versions of them. And when I told him the one about the ex-boyfriend, he looked at me, he goes, actually, that is a really good story. I said, I just want to thank you because I don't know if I'd be doing, well, thank you for so many reasons, but I don't know if I'd be doing this in the business if uh, you know, for lack of a nice, if you've been a dick to me, well, you know, if, if meeting my first hero, whether it was backstage at that Head on the Door concert or a year later at the Sunset Marquee, if you've been a, a jerk to me, maybe it would have soured me on the whole, it would disillusion me or whatever, but I go, you took the time to talk with me twice, and I go, I was especially impressed by the fact that when you know you saw that there were fans waiting for you for the hotel you made the effort to like cross the street and talk to everybody and i remember him saying i'm paraphrasing but he said something like well how hard is it really to talk to someone for a couple minutes who's like made all this effort to like come see you or to talk to you he's like how hard is it to take two minutes out of your day to talk to someone and i'm like well as someone who's worked in the business now for a long time and met many celebrities I can tell you not all celebrities think that way so these were stories that meant a lot to me and kind of i think put us like we all have a story that put us to where we are now but i think that's why you know 30 years later you jenny and i are still so enamored with the cure is like the connection that the fans for the cure have i know jenny your experiences with like the fan club and all that it's like there aren't too many bands that have that this many years into their career that i could think of
0: i think the most important thing from that story is for jenny to know that Robert Smith likes Disney. So when you make your next dollhouse, (laughs) Uh, I have a question for both of you and I'll start with with mine first. What is, and it doesn't have to be 80s, what is the one Cure song that you love that you wish everybody else knew about? Mine is the 13th from Wild Bootswings, which-
1: Oh, interesting
0: choice. First of all, why would they ever pick that as a single, the lead single from an album? Uh, That's like
1: the kind of flamenco-y one, right?
0: Flamenco, mariachi, right. it's kind of got, got a chorus, but not really. And it's one of those songs you hear and you're like, what the really bad You play it again and again. And by like the way, yeah. the third or fourth time, you're like, yeah. this is the most brilliant single ever released. And nobody knows about it.
1: No, I like, you know, what's really weird is I actually listened to that song today, John.
0: Oh, wow. How funny.
1: I, I just had Spotify, like, because I was kind of getting the mood for this. So as I was getting ready, I had like the Spotify, like, this is the cure, like list on, and that song came up, but I had not thought about that song in a long time. And I, you know, you're right. I actually did not like Wild Mood swings when it came out. I thought it was kind of like one of their weakest records, and I probably maybe would still stand by that assessment because they've had so many strong records. But I do, I do like that song actually. What about you, Jenny? What's your like unexpected lost gem? I love Just One Kiss. I,
0: that was my number two. <laughs>
1: you're hearing, John. Uh it was a B side
2: of Let's Go to Bed or the Yeah.
0: Or the walk. It was on Japanese whispers.
2: But it was that era for sure to take and it back to that. A groovy little song is Speak My Language. Yeah. yeah. With the bass. I mean it's funky. I don't know. Maybe it's more than funky.
0: And he but- scats.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's super weird. I was just thinking of kind of strange, maybe lesser known known tunes, but
0: those are I, two of them.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I love sinking off head on the door. It's kind of deeper into the album. It's a good one. We could talk well, about that
1: From the head on the door era, I sort of um I mentioned that the second time I went to see the cure, the time I met them at the Sunset Marquee, uh outside the Sunset Marquee was uh around the standing on a beach tour. And that was wow, what a abundance of riches that was when the stand on the beach compilation came out because you had it on cassette.
2: that was my first one the cassette with everything
1: you got all those b-sides you got and the at that era i mean they've had so many good b-sides but at that era all the b-sides on standing on the beach i think were at the same level as the head on the door actual album cuts i have said before this is my favorite cure song of all time that i fluctuate between this and love cats which is a more obvious choice but One of my top two favorite Cure songs ever is The Exploding Boy, which was a B-side from the Head on the Door era. I loved all the B-sides from that point. I liked, you know, uh, Stop Dead and A Few Hours After This. But The Exploding Boy is such a great, it has a similar kind of guitar strummy thing that In Between Days has. But when The Cure played in, I think, 2017, they did three shows at the Hollywood Bowl, all of them sold out. And they had, you know, with the kind of catalog they have, they had, like, different set lists. You know, obviously there are certain songs they have to play. But they had different set lists every night. And I'm so happy because the night one of the nights I went, they played the Exploding Boy. I couldn't. I screamed. I startled people around me. I didn't think I'd ever hear that one live. That is a real. I encourage people to get that. And uh, But all all of the B-sides from, like, the Head on the Door era, the stuff, they could have made... I think they could have made the Head on the Door double album like they did Kiss Me if they had wanted to. It was that high quality stuff. So that's that's definitely one of my favorite rarities. We're pretty much out of time, but if anyone wants to uh, end with what their favorite, if they haven't already said it, their favorite Cure memory is, I have a couple more, but I want to make sure you guys get the floor.
2: Well, I wore a wedding dress to the Wish Tour show in Toronto, July 17th, 1992. So we just had the anniversary of that and i had front row tickets i made sure of that and a couple of my pen pals had flown in from other places it was a really special thing for us yeah someone from utah one from la and another girl from east coast of canada and it was about six of us and it was really amazing we stayed at the four seasons where the cure was staying so it was just a really really great couple days and i wore the wedding dress and i had a veil and at one point i don't remember what song it was i through, oh, I think it was on during high because this was the wish tour. I threw it on stage and Robert caught it and floated it around my wedding veil. I did tell uh, him story and he remembered. Do you remember? That's
1: that's again, it's so cool. And I mean, you know, I'm sure he has with the especially with the nature of the the Kuros lyrics, you know, he, he probably has some kind of crazy fans. That's probably why when I first said, Oh, I have a story for you, he was like, Oh, God, you have a tattoo. But right. I think he really does actually appreciate how much his music has affected his fans. Oh, I think, you I might think that would a tattoo as well. <laughs> <laughs> what about you,
2: know? Don? Oh sorry.
0: Well first of all, dare we ask.
2: Yeah. <laughs> the tattoo? Yes. <laughs> I drew it on a binder when I was 14, a little spider web in the corner, a little spider, and I wrote the cure in their classic kind of twisty kiss me writing. And I took it to some biker in town and he it's it's here. It's hard to read, it's a little blurry, but I drew it and it
1: says the cure and it's a spider web. Oh, there you go. Okay, John. Um, I don't know if you have any tattoos. I've got
0: all all mine are Bowie tattoos, sorry.
1: That's, that's acceptable. But what is your favorite um cure memory if you haven't already um volunteered? I volunteered?
0: you know it's just it's not anything really having to do with meeting the band or anything like that just this just imprinted on my mind is you know a 14 year old kid in Elyria Ohio doing a paper route, delivering the Chronicle Telegram at six in the morning on a snowy Sunday morning with a huge paper newspaper bag around me with my Walkman and and hearing you know just one kiss or the upstairs room in my ears while the snow's falling on a Sunday morning, just trudging through the neighborhood delivering papers. It sounds horrible, but it's such a nice memory for me.
1: It sounds nice. I'll end by saying that my weird memory that I think, you know, there are some kids that remember the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. There are people that, you know, mention in the moon, the moon landing. There are certain things that people remember. Uh, I remember when Robert Smith cut his hair. It was yeah, a big ass. Cure <laughs> it was It was commemorized in the Cure in Orange, which was directed by Tim Pope, who obviously directed a lot of the, the big videos we've talked about, like close to, close to Me and Let's Go to Bed and The Walk. He directed all the big videos. And, um, the, yeah, the scene where uh, Simon Gallup grabs the wig off of... Um, off of Robert's head and you see that he has short hair now. And that's what's so funny is in the second set of photos that I have, the ones where I met the cure at the sunset marquee, a lot of people be like, Oh, that's a nice picture of you with John Cusack. And I'm like, no, it's Robert. Cause he had short hair at the time. But the funny way is I remember, cause you know, we didn't have the internet then the things news traveled shorter. A lot of kids found out that Robert Smith had cut his hair off when they saw him in concert. And he was doing that shtick with the wig before. And what's really funny is I was on a vacation to visit a, a family friend in Chicago. And we went out to see The Cure in Chicago that year on the Standing on the Beach tour. And I wrote a postcard. To my parents about because I was in Chicago for about ten days about what I was up to and I swear to God the entire postcard was about how Robert Smith had cut his hair like I I was like dear mom and dad I'm having a good time we went to the zoo and Robert Smith cut all, I wrote it all in caps like my like my parents care but this was big news this was the big news coming out of Chicago it was a big deal because Robert had such an iconic look that for him to temporarily out- out- do it was uh yeah it, it was, was
0: it, it was covered in star hits. It was covered in smash hits Uh, when the the video for hot, hot, hot premiered. That's all the VJs talked about was how he cut his hair before doing that video. It was a big deal. It was like,
1: It was a temporary low, though, because he, you know, he has committed to that look. It's been oft imitated, and he even now still has that look. So he didn't remain short-haired for long. Like you, Jenny, I followed every single thing Robert did. I read every lyric. I read every issue of Smash Hits, every interview. I studied the details of the videos. And here we are. 30 something years later, still talking about it. So, you know, he, he changed all of our lives. The cure changed our lives. So, if he's listening, Robert, thank you very much. And uh, we got to find that dollhouse. We're going to, that's our next assignment. We got to find it. But thank you so much, Didi. It's been so much. It's been fun catching up with you in general because it's been a while since I've seen you in person. But to get your insight as, Sassy Magazine's top Cure fan has been an honor and a treat. Do you have uh, anything you're working on uh, in fashion or music that you wanna fill us in on before we let you go? Yeah, sure. I have been working on new music for the first time in a while. I've been
2: touring a lot with Eagles of Death Metal over the past three years, which is super fun. And I love my bass playing. But the past couple months I've been able to get together right now. I have about six songs. And there will be a seven-inch single coming out in approximately three months' time. So I'm really excited about that. And if anyone wants to check out my Cure cover, it's out there. I'm really happy with how it came out. You can hear the bass line that I took some of Simon's live stuff. So that's pretty recent. Um, But uh, yeah, new music. I'm really looking forward to laying that out there. (laughs)
1: I'm looking forward to hearing that as well Well thank you so much for joining us Thanks to everybody for listening I'm Lindsay Parker and I've been joined today by John Hughes and Jenny V And we want to thank you all for listening Remember to give us a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform And we'll catch you next time
2: This was Totally 80s The podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever Don't forget to follow us on Facebook
1: and Instagram at Totally 80s And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side.
0: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly
2: Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. (laughs) AutoTrader.